Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. I hope that this message encourages you. I hope that it inspires you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. Now, I want to remind you that we are in the middle of our year in the story, which is really this deep dive into God's great story and our place in it. If you'd like more information about that or more information about our community here at Restore, you can get that on our website at restoreaustin.org. We'd really love to see you soon. Thanks for listening. In the late 1800s, Sigmund Freud popularized a psychoanalytic technique called free association. Have you ever heard of that? Free association. It's supposed to help people tap into kind of their subconscious, right, and allow them to understand themselves a little bit more fully. One version of free association is actually called word association. And it's basically when someone says a word and then you say the first word that pops into your mind. Have you ever done this with someone? Raise your hand. Have you done this before? Okay, it's pretty popular. So if we were playing, I would say something like ice, and you would say like cream or cold or storm or something like that. Does that make sense? Because we're going to play it together, all right? That's why I'm asking. All right, I want you to, I really want you to do this. Like, I want you to shout the answers out, keep it appropriate. You know, there are little ears in the room, so keep it, keep it appropriate. But I'm going to say words, and I want you to shout out the first word that comes to your mind, okay? It's no fun if, like, only two people play this, okay? So we're going to play it together. You ready? All right, first one. School. Nice. Church. Nobody said restore. That's cool. Just kidding. Oh, thanks, Derek. Appreciate it. Bacon. <laughs> Life. Bread. Salt. Heaven. Hell. If you ask most people what the word pairing for heaven is, they would say hell. You just do it. The vast majority of you, when I said heaven, said Hell. It's such a popular pairing that we've named this series Heaven, Hell, and other things we don't understand very well. But did you know that not one single time in the Bible do the words heaven and hell appear next to each other? Not one time. In fact, they do not even appear in the same sentence one time in the entire Bible. Because in the Bible, Hell is not the opposite of heaven. Earth is the opposite of heaven. See, the combination of heaven and earth appears 195 times in the same sentence. Heaven and earth, 195 times. Heaven and hell, zero times. Even though most of us wouldn't initially pair these words together, heaven and earth are basically what the entire story of the Bible center around. Pastor and author Tim Mackey puts it like this. He says, the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united, then driven apart, and then about how God is bringing them back together again. This is what makes the series that we are starting today so important. This this series is happening inside of a a larger thing that we are calling a year in the story. We started it back in August. And our goal for this year is to better understand God's great story and our place in it. You see, we are convinced that so many times we kind of pick and choose various little parts of Scripture, whether that's verses or passages or stories, and we kind of build our own theology around them. Instead of looking at the entire story of what God is doing and how he's relating to us and how we fit into it. 
So that's what we've been doing for this year. And a huge part of wrapping our minds around God's great story is correcting misconceptions and misunderstandings we have about important pieces of it. And I would confidently say that no part of God's story is more misunderstood than heaven, hell, and the end times. Probably no other part is more discussed than heaven, hell, and the end times. And yet, probably no other part is more misunderstood. Because unfortunately, when we think of heaven and hell and the like, most of what enters our minds is not from the Bible at all. We gather most of our information on these subjects from modern fiction. Things like Dante's Inferno, movies like What Dreams May Come, series like Left Behind. That's why we're calling this series Heaven, Hell, and Other Things We Don't Understand Very Well. Over the next four weeks, we will look at today is heaven, Next week is hell, week three is the end times, and week four is the restoration of all things in something called the new heaven and new earth. It's gonna be really fun. It's probably going to be a little challenging, maybe to some uh, presuppositions that you have or preconceived notions you have about some of these areas, but I'm hopeful that it will be reorienting for us around what scripture actually says about these things. Okay, is that, you ready to dive in? Does that sound good? Not Not if you're with me, all right. Thumbs up are okay too, thank you. Let's pray. And then we're gonna play a video about this week's subject of heaven. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for heaven. Thank you that your word talks about it like crazy. I pray this morning that you will reorient us around what your scriptures actually teach about this super important subject instead of what we learn from modern fiction and songs and movies and literature. Open our hearts, God. Open our minds. Reveal your truth to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm in heaven And the cares that hung around me through the week Seem to vanish like a gambler's lucky streak When we're out together dancing cheek to cheek Oh, I love to climb a mountain And to reach the highest peak But it doesn't thrill me half as much As dancing cheek to cheek Oh, I love to go out fishing In a river or a creek But I don't enjoy it half as much As dancing cheek to cheek We have a lot of modern interpretations of what heaven is. I think this is because Christians are obsessed with heaven. We write books about it, we preach sermons about it, and we talk about it constantly. This isn't surprising given the frequency with which it's talked about in the Bible. You see, heaven is all over scripture. Depending on which version you use, we see it mentioned over 600 times in the Bible. 
It's one of these topics that is so prominent that it's entered into popular culture. Right? We just saw a video with clips of everything, depictions of heaven from you know, everywhere from Disney to the Simpsons and everywhere in between. It has entered into popular culture. It's, it's a conversational thing, not just for Christians, but for everyone. I would guess that 99% of adults in America have heard of heaven and have some opinion on it. And I would guess that virtually every one of those 99% would say that heaven has to do with where you go when you die. Not along. Is that right? Yeah. If you believe the afterlife is real, chances are you've been taught something like this. So you have your earthly life. That's kind of what we're all doing right now. And then you die. And then after death, there's this, this password moment. Sometimes it's depicted as you go to the pearly gates, right? And Peter's there and he checks the Lamb's book of life. He sees if you're in there, right? And then if you're in there, you get to go in the pearly gates. If you're not, then you go somewhere else. Sometimes it's a password moment, like you meet an angel on your way ascending into the sky and then you say the name of Jesus or something like that. And, and that's how you get in or don't get in. Whatever it looks like, there's a password moment. And depending on how you do, in that moment, how you've lived your life or what you say in the password moment or who you claim to follow, you either live life after death in heaven or in hell. Raise your hand if this is some version of what you've been taught, been exposed to, something like that. Not necessarily what you believe, but what you've been taught or exposed to. Yeah, the vast majority of us. But what if I told you that among the 600 plus mentions of heaven in the Bible, not once does it say that people go to heaven when they die? Not one time, not one single time. The thing we obsess most about when talking about heaven isn't even directly discussed in scripture. So that leaves us, it left me at least, I'm gonna project it on you with two looming questions. Question one, what happens after we die? Question two, what are the 600 plus mentions of heaven in the Bible actually talking about? So this morning I'm gonna do my best to answer both of those questions for us. And I'm going to do it with scripture. Let's start with the first one. If we have faith in God, what happens to us after we die? Starting in the Old Testament, it's clear from the authors of the Old Testament books that they believe that you were buried in the ground after you die. That you went into the grave, to Sheol, to whatever it was called. You, you went under the ground and you were buried with the hope of resurrection someday. In fact, the word heaven in the Old Testament language of Hebrew means literally sky. And, and because the sky was so high above them in such a place of authority as well as a source of life, right? It was where the rain and the sun came from that they eventually started talking about heaven as a kind of metaphor for where God is. He's high above us. He's the giver of life. He is in heaven. We are on earth. We're going to talk more about God's space and our space in just a second. But they're still, they still never use, the Old Testament writers never use heaven when talking about the time in between death and resurrection. So they believed you went in the ground and whatever happened in between then, but you had the hope of resurrection someday. But, but the time in between is not discussed in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see more clearly that the hope of resurrection is tied to this second coming of Jesus sometime in the future. The, Old Test or the New Testament opens with Jesus here, right? He is the Messiah. They identify him as the Savior of the world. And then it ends kind of with, not the New Testament ends, but his story ends with him ascending and that he's promised to come again. 
And so the resurrection of all of us, people who died in the Old Testament, people who died now, is kind of tied to the second coming of Jesus. We get that from the New Testament. So our question changes from what happens after we die to what happens in between death and resurrection. You with me? What happens in between death and resurrection? Again, this time in between is what the vast majority of Christians are talking about when they talk about heaven, right? You die, you go up to the pearly gates, you meet Peter, right? He checks to see if your name's in the book. If it is, you walk the streets of gold, you go to your mansion, you spend the rest of eternity kind of singing hymns to God in this like angelic chorus, right? That's what a lot of us have understood from whether it's movies or church or something like that. But even though this is what we almost always talk about when we talk about heaven. Only three passages in the whole Bible talk about the in-between time. Three passages in Scripture talk about the in-between time, and none of them use the word heaven. I'm going to go through them with you really quick. The first one happens when Jesus is on the cross. You may be familiar with this story. So one of the criminals dying alongside Jesus, so he was on the center cross, and then they were, he with two guys were being executed on either side of them. They were thieves, they were criminals. So one of them on one side begins to taunt Jesus, talking trash to him, talking about how, hey, if you're the savior, just save yourself from this cross, save me too. And then the other criminal pipes up and he, he steps in for Jesus. He starts to defend him. Luke 23, 40 records it. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. That's time number one that alludes to this in-between time. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Time number two found in Paul's letter to the Philippian church. And his, as he writes this letter, Paul is actually in prison and he's unsure if he's going to make it out alive. Philippians 1, verse 20. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. So Paul alludes to this time after death, before resurrection, by saying, I long to go and be with Christ. That's number two. Number three, the third and final mention of this in-between time in the Bible occurs in one of Paul's letters to the churches in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5, 6. He says, therefore, we are always confident and we know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So he says to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. That's it. That is the sum total of the Bible's discussion on the time in between when we die and when we are resurrected at the second coming of Jesus. So what do we know from these three passages about that time? I think it's basically just one thing. Let me show you what it is. Luke 23, today you will be with me in paradise. Philippians 1, I long to go and be with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, at home with the Lord. See, the consistent point in these three passages is that you are with Jesus after you die and before you're resurrected. Simply put, if you are in Christ before you die, 
you are with Christ after you die. If you're in Christ before you die, you're with Christ after you die. If you are in Christ, you will never be separated from him. We have scriptures that teach us about this. Jesus says, you are in my hand. No one can take you from me or my father's hand. If you are in Christ, then you will be forever with Christ. This idea is echoed in other places in the Bible as well, most notably in Romans 8. Paul says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels or demons, present or the future, nor any powers, height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, including death, can separate us from Jesus and from his love. So what happens during this in-between time? Where are we? What's it like? In 1 Thessalonians, Paul uses the metaphor of going to sleep during this in-between time. He says many Christians have gone to sleep in this church in Thessalonica. So is it a literal time? Is it a material world? If not, if it's not a material world, do we experience time in the same way we do now? You ready for the answer? I have no idea. <laughs> and the Bible doesn't tell us. It does not describe the in-between time except to say that we are with Christ. So only three passages talk about the time in between death and resurrection, and none of them even use the word heaven. So, and please don't take my word for this, right? I realize I'm sitting up here. You're not like looking through the entire Bible as I talk. So go study this. Go look at it for yourself. I'd love to point you to some resources if you'd like, but go look at this, study it for yourself. Check it out. I think what you'll find is that we have come up with our own definition of heaven based on popular fiction, based on movies, and based on parts of the Bible that are actually talking about the new heaven and new earth, this completed restoration that we're gonna talk about in week four. And it, that's a really, really important thing, but we've actually taken this kind of hodgepodge definition and applied it to every one of the 600 plus uses of heaven in the Bible. You see what I'm saying? We've, we've taken images from Dante's Inferno. We've taken images from All Dogs Go to Heaven and from The Simpsons and from Left Behind and, and from The New Heaven and New Earth as mentioned in Revelation and we've compiled them all together. And we've said, well, every time heaven is mentioned 600 plus times in the Bible, this is the meaning I'm assigning to it. Instead of actually trying to understand what that particular part is talking about. I think you'll also find that what the Bible talks about when it talks about heaven is so much better than we could ever imagine. It's so much better than some angelic dwelling in the clouds. It's so much better. God is so much more gracious than we give him credit for many times. So that leads us to our second question. What are the 600 plus mentions of heaven in the Bible actually talking about? I would say, again, 99% of the time, what we mean when we talk about heaven is not what the Bible means when it talks about heaven. 99% of the time, what we mean when we talk about heaven, the, the pictures and the images I just showed you, the pearly gates and the streets of gold, is not what the Bible is talking about when the Bible talks about heaven. And here's why. The story of the Bible isn't about us going to heaven. It's about heaven coming to earth. The story of the Bible is not about us going to heaven. It's about heaven coming to earth. As we've just established, we have little to no idea what the in-between time is actually like. And for the most part, I think Christians have become so obsessed with a wrong understanding of heaven that we have missed God's desire to use us to bring heaven to earth, to finish his mission of restoration for his creation. Most of the 600 plus passages about heaven in the Bible aren't about people dying and going to live in this magical place in the sky. 
They're about God healing his once perfect creation. Like, listen, listen, stay with me. God isn't abandoning this world. He's restoring it. You tracking with me? Like God isn't just letting all of this burn. He's not letting it all go. He is restoring it. As Tim Mackey said in our quote from the beginning, the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united, how they were driven apart, and then about how God is bringing them back together again. So throughout the Bible, the word heaven is used to describe God's space. Heaven is where God is. It's his space. And the earth is used to describe our space. Heaven is where God is. Earth is where we are. This is how scripture usually uses these terms. At the very beginning of the biblical story, these two spaces are fully united. There's full overlap between these two circles. Heaven and earth are one. This is the description of the Garden of Eden we're given in Genesis 1 through 3. Listen to these verses. And the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the garden, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Like we talked about in our last series, the Garden of Eden is a temple. It's a place where God and humanity dwell together. We lived together. God and humanity. We walked together. We took care of creation together. God's space and our space completely unified. Heaven on earth. That's what Eden was. Perfection. But it didn't last, right? God gave humanity one rule in Eden. Genesis 2:15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, "You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. And I want us to understand here that God forbidding the tree is much more about him not wanting Adam and Eve to, to experience evil, to know what evil is. In fact, that, that word knowledge in the Hebrew is from this Old Testament word da'af. And its English equivalent is much more like awareness or experience. It's, it's, a, it's a deep understanding. That's what the knowledge of good and evil was. Forbidding this tree is God the Father telling his children, I don't want you to live in a world where you have to experience evil and brokenness. This tree, though, represents God giving humanity a choice. It's God asking humanity to trust him, to believe that he wants what's best for them, but not forcing them to do so. The tree is also a reminder that even though humanity is a full participant, in this heaven on earth, they're together with God, they're walking with God, they're cultivating with God. Even though they are a full participant, they aren't in charge. This is God's domain. He's in charge. He makes the rules. And when Adam and Eve decide to ignore the instructions of God and eat from the tree, they are telling God in no uncertain terms that they want their own domain. They want to be in charge. They want to make the rules. And God gives it to them. He gives us our own space. He removes them from the Garden of Eden. He removes them from his presence. Genesis 3, 23. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden and sent them out to cultivate the ground from which they had been made. And just like that, God's space and our space, when they were once one, have now been driven apart. Heaven on earth is now heaven and 
earth. Totally separated. God's space and our space. And after heaven and earth are separated, the Bible begins giving us distinctive characteristics of these two spaces. It says heaven is filled with things like justice and mercy and goodness and beauty and that the earth is filled with things like sin and injustice and ugliness and evil. We even start hearing synonyms for these two spaces in Scripture. God's space is called the kingdom of God, eternal life, paradise. Our space is called the world, the present age, or the age of sin and death. And without God's space in our space, the earth quickly descends into violence and chaos. Murder, oppression, and war become commonplace in this new world that's governed by us, that's ruled by us, where, where we make the decisions. In Genesis 11, we're introduced to this vile city called Babylon. In fact, this city is so corrupt, it's so violent that it's used as a representation of evil empires throughout the entire biblical story. In Genesis 11, these people in Babylon have a mission to build their city with a huge tower in it. Here's what it says in verse 4. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Where did they want the tower to reach? See that? The heavens. They wanted to go where God was. Just like Adam and Eve, they wanted to be God. They wanted to be in charge. They wanted to make the rules. But the people of Babylon quickly learn that humanity can't invade God's space. God confuses the language of the Babylonians and they never finish their tower. Listen to this. The only way we can be with God is if he brings his space to us. We can't invade his space. The only way we can be with him is if he graciously and lovingly brings his space to us. And here's the miraculous thing about our God. Even after Adam and Eve, even after Cain murders Abel, even after Babylon tries to build their own tower into the heavens, God isn't finished with us. He hasn't given up on humanity. Even after we drove heaven and earth apart, God enacts this plan to bring us back together again. That's our God. That's his graciousness. That's his love. Immediately after the Tower of Babel, we're introduced to this man named Abram. He was later called Abraham, and God is using him to begin his plan of reuniting heaven and earth. He's going to use Abraham and his family to do it. Here's what God tells him, Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God makes something called a covenant with Abraham. It's this promise to bless Abraham and his offspring so that all humanity will be blessed through them, right? He says, I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to the world. He's restoring his relationship with Abraham's family so he can begin restoring his relationship with every family on earth. Or to put it another way, God is allowing his space and Abraham's space to overlap a little bit, for, for Abraham to experience a little bit of heaven on earth so that he can begin sharing that experience with the whole world. Here's what I'm talking about. There's overlap. God comes back into our space and he says, I haven't given up on you yet. And he blesses Abraham so that he could be a blessing to the rest of the world. Let's him experience a little bit of heaven on earth. 
And Abraham's family eventually becomes the nation of Israel. And the blessings they were supposed to bring to earth were characteristics of God's space. The things we've already talked about, justice, generosity, mercy, grace. We see these characteristics all over the law that God gives to Israel through a guy named Moses. They're little bits of heaven on earth. He says to to treat people kindly, to bring justice, to be generous to other people. He's bringing these little bits of heaven. He's, He's using this family that he called out to bring more and more of heaven to earth. God continues renewing this covenant with Abraham, with his son Isaac, and with his grandson Jacob. And I want to quickly show you the covenant he makes with Jacob because it's going to be really, really important in a minute. In Genesis 28, God appears to Jacob in a dream. It says, Jacob had a dream in which a, he All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and through your offspring. So in addition to renewing his covenant with Jacob in this passage, we see an incredible picture. I don't know if you saw it there, but we see this incredible picture of the overlap between heaven and earth here. Back to the graphic we just put up, right? We see a picture of the purple part here. God is showing Jacob that through their covenant, God's space and our space will overlap. Jacob sees a staircase with the bottom touching the earth, with the top reaching into the heavens, and angels are ascending and descending on it. It's this connection between heaven and earth, this connection between God's space and our space. And he says, my covenant with you is like this staircase. It's a connection between these two places. And my hope, my goal for you is that you share that blessing, that experience, heaven on earth with everyone you encounter. And remember, okay, remember the stairway connecting heaven and earth. It's gonna be super important in just a second. God makes these similar covenants with Moses, with David, with the people of Israel as a whole. He builds tabernacles and temples where God's space overlaps with our space and people can experience these little bits of heaven on earth. God is slowly and but surely reuniting his space and our space. But there's one big problem. Humanity breaks every single one of these covenants. They desecrate every single one of these temples. And eventually humanity turns so far away from God and so deeply wants to be in charge of their own domain and make their own rules that God just lets them go. He allows them to make the rules and the results are catastrophic. As the Old Testament nears the end, we see the people who had once partnered with God to bring heaven to earth, sacrificing children and colluding with demons and doing all these horrific, terrible things. But just when it seems like God is completely finished with humanity, he takes his reunification plan to the next level. All throughout the Old Testament, God's prophets had been predicting that he would send a savior. The people thought it was Abraham or or Moses or David, but they all fell short. They needed a new prophet, a new priest, a new king, and that's exactly what God gives them as the New Testament begins. 
the first sentence of the first book in the New Testament, Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, begins with this sentence. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The first words of the New Testament clearly identify Jesus as this long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of the world, and as a descendant of Abraham. This is vitally important for a couple of reasons. The, the first one is obvious, right? Jesus is being identified as this long-predicted, long-awaited Savior from God. But the second one is that Jesus is from the line of Abraham. He is this fulfillment of God's covenant promise to bless the whole world through Abraham's family. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants were never able to keep their side of the covenant. They continually turn their backs on God. They continually want to be in charge, but Jesus is changing all of that. Because guys, Jesus isn't just a, a great man sent by God. Jesus was God himself, God in the flesh. John describes it like this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John's using the word as another name for Jesus here. And he does this to emphasize that Jesus is God. Jesus is what God is like. The fullest expression of God's character, his word himself. From the very beginning of his life and ministry, Jesus is clear that he had come to bring heaven to earth. This was his mission. You see, just a few verses later, John is telling the story of Jesus recruiting his first disciples. And at the end of the story, Jesus is talking to his disciples and listen to what he says. Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Do you recognize these words here? They're from that story we just read from Genesis 28 and God's covenant with Jacob. When Jacob saw heaven open and the angels of God going up and down, it was on a staircase. But Jesus is saying, I am that staircase. He actually stops the quote. He says, heaven opened and the angels of God descending and descending on. And instead of saying a staircase, he says, on me, on the son of man. He is the forever connection between God's space and our space. He is reuniting heaven and earth. Jesus left heaven and came to earth so that he could bring heaven to earth. So he could make an overlap that could never be broken because it wasn't based on a covenant with us. It was based on him, his character, and his love. One of the first things he does as his ministry begins in the second chapter of John's account is to visit the temple. Now, the temple is no longer the place where God's presence dwells. It's no longer this little picture of heaven on earth anymore. It's become this terrible place where religious people prey on other people. Jesus goes in and he starts flipping over tables and kicking people out. And when he's confronted about it, he says this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus has spoken. Again, Jesus is saying the temple is no longer the connection between heaven and earth. I am the connection between heaven and earth. And Jesus spends the rest of his time on earth helping people experience little bits of heaven. 
forgiving sins, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, welcoming the stranger, loving the broken. That's who he is. That's what he did. He was bringing heaven to earth. And he also spent time talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. He tells story after story about what God's space is really like and how it's so radically different from what our space is really like. He makes declarations that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's here in the person of Jesus, me, he says. And then during the most important three days in human history, God in the flesh lays his life down on the cross, is buried and then overcomes death and is resurrected to a new life. And after he rises from the dead, he appears to his followers and he says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. In the very next chapter, this happens. Acts 2, the spirit of Jesus comes upon them and the church is born. And here is one of the most incredible parts of, of all this. As God indwells every believer in Acts 2 through the Holy Spirit, he's making them into little temples, little staircases, little overlaps of heaven and earth. Little places where God's space meets our space, right? You have the connection, the forever connection from the cross, and then each and every person that he indwells with his spirit becomes a part of heaven on earth. Not just experiencing heaven in our own lives and, and getting caught up with it like Abraham and his people did, but expressing it, sharing it with the world, being blessed to be a blessing. Experiencing heaven in our own lives to share heaven with people who aren't experiencing it. This is the story. That's us. That's the church. This is the story of Scripture, not us leaving earth and going to heaven, but God using us to bring heaven to earth. I'm telling you, it's, it's better. It's better. One of my pastors, Joanne, always talks about how Christians are kingdom bringers. She says that we are bringing the kingdom of heaven with us wherever we go. And every time she says it, she gets this just massive smile on her face. Because it's, it's just the best. When you can share some of heaven with somebody who's never experienced it and watch the life light up in their eyes as they experience the love of Jesus for the first time, there's nothing like it. Listen, if you miss everything else I've said this morning, don't miss this. Christians aren't waiting for heaven. We are being used by God to bring heaven to earth. Christians aren't waiting for heaven. We are being used by God to bring heaven to earth. He wants to use us to bring more and more of his space into our space. God isn't abandoning this world. He's restoring it and he's using us to do it. That's his plan. He told his followers, you will be my witnesses. You will go out to the very ends of the earth sharing it's little pieces of heaven with people who've never experienced it. This fully restored place that we are working toward, that God is working toward, is called the new heaven and new earth in Scripture. It's where God's space and our space fully reconnect, right? This is what it looks like. Back to the very beginning, back to Eden, back to the original intention for God's world. We'll spend an entire Sunday talking about the new heaven and new earth in the last week of this series because it's so important and because it's really where our true hope lies. But 
this deeply biblical understanding that Christians aren't waiting for heaven, but instead being used by God to bring heaven to earth has profound implications for our life today. And this is what I want to finish with and what I want to challenge you with as we go. This is most clearly seen when Jesus is still on earth and he's teaching his followers how to pray. It's commonly called the Lord's Prayer, right? And and almost all of us have heard it. Most of us have prayed it. A lot of us probably have it memorized. It's prayed at town halls and in locker rooms and around dinner tables and everywhere in between. But even though it may be familiar, I bet that most of us haven't understood it through the lens of God using us to bring heaven to earth. So look at the beginning of it with me. This then, Jesus says, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. He's in heaven. That's his space. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus taught his followers how to pray, he told them to pray for heaven to come to earth. He didn't tell them to pray that one day they would be released from the bondage of earth and and fly away to heaven. That's not what he told them to pray. He told them to pray that they would be used by him to bring heaven to earth. That's exactly what they did. They were filled with the spirit of Jesus, became the church, and poured out their lives bringing heaven to earth. They were those little crosses, right? All those characteristics of heaven I mentioned earlier, justice and mercy and goodness and beauty, these first church, they they filled the corners of the earth with those pieces of heaven. Just like Jesus, they cared for the sick, they fed the hungry, they welcomed the stranger, they loved the broken, and they pointed people to the one who could forgive sins and give new life. This is the story of the New Testament and the role of the church in the world to be used by God to bring more and more of heaven to earth. One person, one family, one neighborhood, and one city at a time. That's the story of the New Testament. And this is the job that has been passed on to us. We, the church, are tasked with being used by God to bring heaven to earth. This is why the popular Christian sentiments of, hey, don't worry about it, it's all going to burn anyway, or, or this world isn't our home, so, so just forget about it, are so backwards and, and so dangerous because they make it seem like The job of the Christian is just to get off of earth and into heaven and hopefully take some people with them. That's not it. That's not our job. And it carries with it the obvious implications that our lives here don't really matter. That we're just trying to get through this heck hole of a place so that we can get out to it. We can get out of it and go to heaven. But that's not the biblical story. That's not what it's about. It encourages us to ignore things like orphans and widows and and environmental care and refugee crisis and violence and poverty and, and marginalization of people based on their race and their gender and their sexual orientation and, and scores of other justice issues. This type of thinking encourages us to just not worry about those because it's all going to burn anyway. I love how pastor and author Nate Pyle says it. He says, the Christian goal is not to escape earth, but to see heaven invade earth. 
Our hope is not to live a fleshless eternity, but to see our flesh redeemed and restored. This is why justice matters. Justice matters. Beauty, mercy, and goodness matter because this world hasn't just been written off by God. He hasn't just turned his back on it and said, someday I'm going to take it all up in this big flame of fire and I'm going to take all the people who've done good up to heaven and we're just going to start over. We're not even going to worry about it anymore. That's not the story. He is healing and restoring this world, his creation, one person at a time. So listen to me. This has two huge implications for us this morning. Number one, no matter what you are walking through, he sees you. And he wants to bring justice into your life. He wants you to experience the goodness and the beauty and the hope and the love that is only available through him. He wants that for you. He's not just saying, hold on and you'll get to heaven someday. He wants to give you life and life abundantly today. He wants you to experience that. That's implication number one. Implication number two is that he wants to use us to bring justice into the lives of the people around us. Because it's not just for us. We're not just called to hoard it and to, to keep it for ourselves, but we're called to distribute it to people who are hurting and broken all over this world. When Jesus taught his followers to pray, he didn't say, release me from this earth and let me enter the kingdom of heaven. He said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This must be our prayer too. Our lives are too short and too important to waste just waiting for heaven. God wants to use us to bring heaven to earth. We could spend another entire series talking about all the places that God wants to use us to bring justice and beauty and mercy and goodness into. We have before and I'm sure that we will do it again, but for today, I'm going to leave you with one simple challenge. I want you to make this your daily prayer. Jesus, use me to bring more of heaven to earth. It's just a little spin on that Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, use me to bring more of heaven to earth. Pray it when you wake up in the morning. Jesus, use me today to bring more of heaven to earth. Let's be kingdom bringers, bringers of the kingdom of heaven to earth, bringing it with us everywhere we go. Let's pray. God, thank you for um, just the truth of your word this morning. Thank you that you love us and you care for us deeply, more than we could ever imagine. And thank you that you aren't just abandoning us that you aren't just abandoning this world, God, but that you are chasing us. You're coming after us with your love, with your presence, with bits of heaven. God, we pray and hope for the, the day in the future where those two circles, your space and our space, completely overlap once again. But in the meantime, use us to bring more of heaven to earth. Jesus, your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help us not to get so consumed with the afterlife that we miss that you want to use us to bring heaven to earth today. Make that our prayer today and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.